Over the past couple of weeks, we've been tracking towards this Easter weekend through our Easter series, the mess, the miracle, and the mission. Graham began the series reminding us of the mess that we find ourselves in as a result of sin and the importance of confession, aligning our thoughts about our sin with what God says about our sin and then moving forward in a direction that honours him. Last week, Jason spoke to us of Jesus as the light that exposes our mess and how we respond in one of two ways, either by retreating back into the darkness with our mess or to open ourselves to his grace and allow him to work in our lives so that we might experience the freedom he brings. Today, Good Friday, it'd be fairly easy to assume that we'd continue with the mess theme, given that the events that we remember on this day paint a pretty bleak picture of human behaviour which led to the death of Jesus. But today, we take the next step in this series to explore the miracle, actually a series of miracles that paved the way for us out of the mess of sin. Good Friday, is, Good Friday is not usually the part of the Easter story that we attribute the word miracle to. We tend to save that for Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and we're going to hear about that on Sunday. But Often, we tend to be in such a hurry to rush past Good Friday to get to Resurrection Sunday, mainly because Good Friday isn't pretty, but it's incredibly important we slow down and take a closer look at what God was up to. We don't want to miss the miracle of this day, because as we read through the events leading up to the crucifixion, we find some pretty extraordinary things going on. Now, if we're going to be talking about miracles today, we should remind ourselves of what a miracle is, as it gives us a really good filter through which to understand what's happening. So a miracle is described as an extraordinary and welcome event that is not explicable by natural or scientific laws and is therefore attributed to a divine agency. Secondly, a miracle is described as a remarkable event or a development that brings very welcome consequences. And thirdly, a miracle is an exceptional product or achievement or an outstanding example of something. We believe that God is the miracle maker, God of the impossible. We read that throughout the Bible, God does extraordinary things. We believe today that miracles still occur. Many people have experiences that defy our common understanding of the way that the world works. Things happen beyond scientific explanation, beyond logic or reason, beyond mere coincidence. We try and rationalise it. Sometimes we say it's an answer to prayer, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes we don't even recognise it at the time, and it's only when we look back can we see God's hand at work in totally unexpected ways to get us to where we are today. 
God often operates in what seems like an upside down and back to front sort of way. Jesus' birth, death and resurrection had been prophesied about for centuries. And in the moment of these things actually happening, yes, there were flashes of incredible awesomeness, but they were mostly interspersed with what seemed at the time as everyday, run-of-the-mill ordinariness, especially to those bystanders in the crowds and even to some of the main players in the story. The notion of miracles occurring along the path to Jesus' horrific crucifixion would have been desperately sought by his followers. Miracles were certainly mockingly demanded by Jesus' detractors. And to most in the crowd who came out to see what all the commotion was about that day, miracles were probably the last thing on their mind. This was just another criminal. The Roman soldiers were leading to his death. A very, very regular occurrence. Nothing unusual about it at all. Thousands upon thousands of people were crucified by the Roman Empire in the 300 years before and after the life of Jesus. But today I want to zoom in on what was going on that day, to see where miracles were happening in plain sight, but were completely overlooked by most of the people involved in those events leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. So let's pick up the story on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane as recorded by Matthew. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus had been praying and then talking with his disciples when a crowd came to arrest him. So reading from Matthew 26. While he, that's Jesus, was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judah said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? There's a miracle right there in that passage. Did you catch it? Just after Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss, in verse 50 we read, Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. Now, let's not forget who Jesus was. He was a man, but he was also God. God who took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. No doubt some of those in the crowd would have heard about the omnipotent power of God who breathed the universe into existence who caused a catastrophic worldwide flood, 
who saved the Israelites from the Egyptian army by incredibly parting the Red Sea. We now have a group of these men stepping forward and seizing Jesus. They seized God. They aggressively took hold of the all-powerful God. And he miraculously let them. And they took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders were also waiting. The high priest said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and they struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? These were the religious leaders, the ones with all the power. And this was the issue. Last week, Jason reminded us of how Jesus had this way of exposing the mess of the religious leaders' sin and damaging their reputation. And they weren't too happy about it. For those of you familiar with the story of Jesus, you may recall that this wasn't the first time that they'd wanted to cause violence to Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, in Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown, people in the synagogue didn't like what he was saying. So they drove him out of the town with the intention of throwing him off a cliff. And we read that Jesus simply walked right through the crowd and went on his way. In John chapter 8, Jesus was again exposing the mess of the religious and they picked up stones to stone him. And again, we read that Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. That must have been, that must have been incredibly frustrating, you know, stones and things in their hands. Come on, let's get him, come on, yeah. Where did he... How frustrating would that have been? But now, now they've got him. These were the religious leaders, the ones meant to be representing God on earth, being God's hands and feet. And now they were beating God with their hands and feet and spitting in his face. God created this remarkable tool, intricately designed for precision and gentleness and strength and power. And now it's being used against the one who gave it to them. For them to do this was astounding, miraculous, that God would allow for this to happen and for the religious leaders to think that they were still in control. 
We read on. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. They bound him and they led him away. Jesus, who calmed the furious storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, who cast out raging demons. Jesus, who walked around in a blazing furnace with Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. He was somehow miraculously bound with rope or chains and led like an animal to the Roman governor. With the Romans now taking charge of the situations, things go from bad to worse. Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Matthew speaks of the flogging as just like a bit of a byline, really. And if you've seen paintings, the classic paintings of Good Friday, you might see Jesus with a few kind of red stripes across his back. Maybe. If you've seen the flogging scene in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion of the Christ, that's probably a little closer to historical accounts of what a Roman flogging involved. Matthew continues, The governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, and that, that was Pilate's palace, and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand, Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and they took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. The prophet Isaiah wrote this about Jesus 700 years before this event took place. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So blinded by their sin, so blinded by their preoccupation with themselves and their lust for blood, The religious leaders and the Roman soldiers with their grip so tight on self-serving power, they fail to see the miracle of what they're able to do, what they're allowed to do with their tiny human hands to the infinite and almighty Son of God. As Jesus was thrown down and dragged onto the cross as it lay on the ground, He would have been held down by a soldier or two as another began to hammer a metal spike through Jesus' hand into the wooden beam, then over to the other hand, then through both his feet. As the hammer continues to strike, as it's done for hundreds of crucifixions before, the soldiers hear words that they've never heard before. Father, forgive them, 
for they do not know what they are doing. There were miracles happening that day. As the cross was raised atop the hill of Calvary, the mocking of Jesus became even more savage and relentless. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just after he was baptized, out in the desert, Satan questioned Jesus' identity in a grasp for power and control. If you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, command your angels to come and save you as you throw yourself off the temple. And here he is again, making his way through the crowd, speaking through the voices of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. But Jesus did not come down from the cross to prove who he was. He stayed on the cross to bring salvation to a dying world. Not only was it a miracle for Jesus to be nailed to a cross, it was a miracle that he stayed on the cross. Satan knew about the angels at God's command. He used to be one of them. If you remember back to the passage we read about Jesus being arrested, Jesus said, Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion was made up of roughly 6,000 soldiers. The number varies throughout Roman history, but let's say it's 6,000. If we times that by 12, we have 72,000 angels, minimum. Now, just for a point of reference, if you remember back to the olden days before COVID, where sellout crowds used to be a thing, the Gabba holds 48,000 people. Suncorp Stadium holds 52,500. Jesus had more than 72 thousand battle-ready angels at his disposal, ready to deploy, watching every move, every insult, every slap, every punch, every flesh-ripping lash of the whip, every piercing strike of the hammer, just waiting for the word. Waiting for the word. But it never came. Miracles happened that day. It's a miracle that Jesus stayed on the cross 
And it had to be that way. We often hear that Jesus took our place on the cross. But if we were to substitute our life for his on a cross, nothing would change. The reason it had to be Jesus was that he was the perfect sacrifice required to pay for our sin. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. It's a miracle that Jesus died. I hope we catch the significance of that. It would seem that Good Friday didn't turn out so good for Jesus. It wasn't an overly welcome event for him in the way that a miracle is defined in the dictionary. How crazy, upside down and back to front this all seems. The way that we see a story starting out one way, only for God to flip it on its head for a greater purpose. For the religious leaders and Roman soldiers and those in the crowd surrounding the cross, these events were unfolding in only one direction. But God sees things and makes plans which often go in the complete opposite way to what we would expect. Good Friday. How can one describe such a day? The wrongdoing of all humanity, putting to an end an innocent man, the Son of God. This is the story of Jesus' death by way of a cross, all in one moment bringing death to the bright light of our future. He never stopped loving us, and yet this is the incredible part of it. Our sin stopped his heart. Our sin drove the nails firmly in the hands of God. All along, these were the plans. We told ourselves that we were in control, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. The brutal beating, the inhuman flogging, the naked humiliation. Heaven watched and saw it all. Our rebellion, our guilt, our shame, erasing the very notion of reconciling us with God. Our sin and our debt, overcoming Jesus. Here is our King, obliterated. The enemy laughing, his plans unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of freedom rising. Now God's people are utterly broken. Behold the chains of mortality. Yes, this is what is true. We had heard the stories of old. The lost are found, the blind can see, the weak are made strong. But now we are witnesses to this reality. God is dead. We'd almost believed there is a way of redemption. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a peace beyond understanding. Now we know better. For us, we can say that God is encapsulated in this one realization. 
the single greatest sacrifice in human history is finished. How clearly we can see it. So what's so good about Good Friday? Just one thing, that the blood of Jesus can reverse the curse of sin and raise the dead to life. How clearly we can see it is finished. The single greatest sacrifice in human history encapsulated in this one realization, we can say that God is for us. Now we know better. There is a peace beyond understanding. There is a life of fulfillment. There is a way of redemption. We had almost believed God is dead, but now we are witnesses to this reality. The weak are made strong, the blind can see, the lost are found. We had heard the stories of old, yes, this is what is true. The chains of mortality utterly broken, behold freedom rising. Now God's people are unstoppable. There's no longer the sound of the enemy laughing, his plans obliterated. Here is our King, Jesus overcoming our sin and our debt, reconciling us with God, erasing the very notion of our rebellion, our guilt, our shame. Heaven watched and saw it all, the naked humiliation, the inhuman flogging, the brutal beating, and this was deemed sufficient for all of us. We told ourselves that we were in control. All along, these were the plans firmly in the hands of God. Our sin drove the nails, our sin stopped his heart, and yet this is the incredible part of it. He never stopped loving us. The bright light of our future all in one moment, bringing death to death by way of a cross. This is the story of Jesus, the Son of God, an innocent man putting to an end the wrongdoing of all humanity. How can one describe such a day? Good Friday. The fact that Jesus could die is a miracle. The fact that he chose to die is mind-blowing because of who he is, God's son. He demonstrated a love that goes beyond comprehension. Nothing we could do could earn God's favor. Because of the mess of sin, we were completely cut off from his kingdom. In Paul's letter to the early church in Rome, he writes, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He goes on to write in verse 10 that we were enemies with God. The mess of sin causes us to clench our fists and start swinging, to take hold of the whip and start lashing, to raise the hammer and begin striking. Now we might say that I wouldn't do that. I'm not that kind of person. But the Bible says that we all fall short of God's perfect standard. 
and you've never seriously considered who Jesus is and what he did for you on that cross and what it means to follow him, I'd really encourage you to consider that. At the end of the service today, if you'd like somebody to talk to or you'd like somebody to pray with you, we just invite you to come on down the front and we'll have some pastors and some elders down the front here. We'd be more than happy to do that. If you're watching us online, if you're joining us that way, and you've got questions or you would like prayer, please let us know in the comments section and we'll make sure that we can follow up with you. We'd love the opportunity to have those conversations. For those of us who have made that decision to follow Jesus, we press on. So let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Through all that Jesus suffered, there was a hope that he held on to. The promise and the joy of the day of being seated at the right hand of God in the assembly of all those who believed who he is and what he did for us. Jesus' joy was in our redemption. And until that day that we are forever in his presence, Jesus invites us to come together to take part in a simple meal that we call communion. This time where we come to a place of reflection, of remembrance, of thankfulness, of confession, in light of the miracle of what Jesus did for us on the cross that Good Friday. For those of us in the building, hopefully you've collected your little, uh, little communion packs if you want to get those ready. Uh, the wafer, which represents God's, blood, God's body, which is broken for us. The juice, which represents His blood shed for us. And if you're joining us online, if you haven't already, if you'd like to go and get some, some elements, that would be great. Feel free to pause the stream and come back to us when you're ready. That would be great. It would be good just to share in this time together. Now, I'll give you a few moments to, uh, to take and eat the bread, the wafer, and then I'll invite us all to drink together as an expression of the unity that we have in Jesus for what he's done for each of us. And then I'll pray. So let's now um, take and eat the bread. Let's drink together now 
the juice and give thanks for the life-saving death of Jesus on the cross. pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this special service today that we've been able to take some time to reflect on the miracle, the miracles of Good Friday. We thank you for the way Jesus demonstrated love and humility by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And though being in very nature God, he did not use that to his advantage but for ours. Thank you for the life that we have in you because of what Jesus did by dying on the cross for our sin. Thank you for the good and perfect plan you have for each of our lives and for this church. May we continue passionately pursuing you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.